Bill Osmolsky with the McIver Institute. This is the McIver Newsmakers podcast. We're joined today by Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahue, and we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, the year in review and looking forward to 2023. So, Senator, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Hey, so just, you know, jumping right off, uh, uh, what would, you know, looking back at 2022, um, you know, what stands out in your, your mind as um, biggest accomplishments? You know, what really stands out in your, you know, milestones for the year for you? Being an election year, uh, the uh, most exciting thing about 2022 is that we picked up an additional seat in the state Senate. Uh, briefly giving us a, a two-thirds majority. Uh, since then, we had one of our, our members uh, retire, but uh, hoping to win that win that seat back, the Alberta Darling seat, Senator Alberta Darling. But, you know, it's exciting that uh, the reforms that we've worked on in the Senate and the Assembly over the last uh, 12 years or so um, that the voters um, have responded and uh, gave us both strong majorities and a two-thirds majority in the Senate. How do you, um, you know, having a supermajority, I mean, that, that is an incredible accomplishment. Um, you know, one thing that people should keep in mind, though, especially with uh, Republicans, uh, Republicans don't all, all march lockstep. So having, you know, uh, uh, you know that uh, supermajority doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to get that two-thirds vote at the drop of a hat. Um, how do you expect to be able to, how do you expect to use that, um, th- that majority to kind of leverage issues and, um, you know, to your advantage? From a from a procedural standpoint, um, it, it will help us, um, assuming we win the A Senate district back next spring. Um, it will help us procedurally um, on the floor and things like that. But and until the the assembly gets to two thirds, um, we can't override vetoes or things like. I mean, we could override it in one house, but it needs to be overrided in both houses for us to uh, to overturn. Uh, potential Evers vetoes. But I think it just, as, as you mentioned, not not all Republicans agree 100% of the time on every issue. So it's nice to have, you know, a five, four or five uh, vote majority to help get key legislation done, uh, nice conservative uh, key legislation and put it on the governor's desk. That sounds great. Um, so, you know, sticking with, uh, you know, reviewing uh, reviewing this past year, you know, um, I know there were a lot of surprises, you know, and just going through my notes, you know, on, on some of, you know, I, I, it's so, there's so much happens these days in a year that it's easy to forget everything that, you know, some of the biggest stories, but, you know, just looking back, uh, you know, at the top of your mind, you know, what was the biggest surprise or surprises of the past year for you? Uh, well, probably the biggest disappointment was what happened at the top of the ticket in the governor's race in Wisconsin. We thought with Biden's approval rating and uh, inflation um, skyrocketing in Wisconsin, if in an election year, I spent a lot of time knocking on doors around the state in different districts. Uh, we really thought or were hoping it was going to be a, a better better election results, especially at the top of the ticket. So it was unfortunate that, that we didn't pull through um, with the governor's race. Um, so I think that was my biggest surprise, how much the um, suburban areas of Wisconsin still haven't come back to, to Republicans, maybe because of uh, the, the Dobbs decision partially, and partially because of maybe the Trump factor, things like that. You know, it's it's almost like we're rewriting the book on political science 
these days because, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, there is a lot going wrong these days, and yet the vast majority of voters decided to stay with incumbents. Like, yeah, inflation's out of control, border security, you know, just run down the list. But, yeah, I'm okay with the status quo. Yeah, I think part of it is that Governor Evers hasn't really done anything in four years. Um, you know, he sort of stayed in the mansion, um, hasn't really led on anything. And, you know, he signed our budgets to two sessions in a row. Uh, so I guess there's a percentage of the population who thinks, well, he's not hes not Joe Biden. He's maybe not his fault that there's 8% unemployment, that gas prices spiked above $4 a gallon. Uh, he's He's given us tax cuts thanks to our hard work by putting those bills on his desk, even though he wanted to increase taxes. So, yeah, maybe we didn't do a good job, good enough job of getting our message out. Maybe uh, Michael's didn't do a good enough job. But, um, yeah, it's just unfortunate that someone who is such a was such a weak leader for four years and really accomplished virtually nothing except signing our legislation um, took a victory lap and credit for it and somehow squeaked out an election. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, we don't know what his internal polling was. So, you know, assuming it was, you know, actually it doesn't matter whether it was a surprise to him or not. I mean, obviously he's going to feel empowered. Um, I, I'd be surprised, to, you know, I, I think it's, you know, a reasonable expectation that, you know, he's going to be, you know, that he's, he's going to run two terms and right off into the sunset. So, you know, given that situation, I mean, how how has it been talking with him since the election? Is it the same Evers as before, or is he like empowered, emboldened? Is this going to be a tough, you know, a tough uh, a, a tough guy to deal with for the next four years? Yeah, so that's the great that's the million, or maybe I should say billion dollar question because of our surplus, <laughs> uh, the, the billion dollar question in in Wisconsin. So for the last two years, um, the speaker and I had very little, um, virtually no contact with with the governor and uh, but since re-election he's he's reached out to both of us um i have a meeting scheduled with him and i think he realizes at this point i mean obviously him and his staff probably feel emboldened with a you know two point two percentage three percentage point win um they probably feel really emboldened but this is likely his um after this budget in the next budget he'll probably be more of a lame duck governor so this is likely his last chance to um sort of have his legacy budget i'm guessing um which is going to be his desire being the you know former uh head of dpi he's he's already put a marker out there of two billion to be put into k-12 education and so and i'm not saying that we're going to give him two billion in in k-12 education but if he wants a substantial investment in in k-12 education you know if he's willing to compromise we can maybe we can get them a nice investment in K-12 education as long as we're getting historic tax cuts and school choice expansion and things like that. So I'm hopeful that he's willing to negotiate with us because there's five percent of the state that you know voted for Republican senators, Republican assemblymen, and a Democrat for governor. So we we feel there's an opportunity. We're in a unique since I'm guessing this may be one of your questions moving forward, but 
you know, what are we going to do with a six, projected $6.6 billion surplus? We're in a really unique situation where we can provide historic tax cuts and make investments in, in some areas of government. Um, yeah, so, I mean, just uh, sticking with, you know, Governor Evers' priorities for, for a moment, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen the, you know, his posts on social media, you know, talking about needing to invest in education. And I mean, th- that's got to be a tough issue for Republicans to, um, to, to, to deal with because you guys continually give historic increases to education. Every budget, you know, for the past, you know, few cycles here has, been, has, has included the, the largest investment in public education in state history. And we keep you know, keep um, outdoing that each budget, and yet each budget, the governor is able to continually get leverage out of the idea that we're underfunding education. So, you know, you mentioned that he might be looking at $2 billion increased education. I mean, is even $2 billion enough? Is it ever enough? And even if you give him everything he asked for, is he ever going to say, hey, we're great, great, glad we work together, or is it just going to be a... Yeah, they never get. They they still didn't give us what we need. Yeah, that's a great way to frame up frame up that question. Um, two budgets ago, I was working on the finance committee, and uh, we invested about six hundred million into K twelve education into that budget, six hundred million increase, um, which at that point was the largest increase ever in K twelve education. And now, you know, he's talking a number that's three times that, more than three times that. And as you suggested, now with uh, a potential historic surplus going into it, is he going to try to get even more than that? And you, and since the pandemic, well, even before that, but we've seen, um, you know, racial gaps increasing. We've seen um, failing scores increasing. So with with investing in K twelve, we've seen results not not improving. They've been actually getting worse. So you know what's What's the best use of that money to target it to make sure that it's actually being put into education? And rightfully, since the pandemic, parents, when they started saying what, especially in some more urban school districts, saying what what their kids are actually being taught in school because they were helping teach their kids at home when all the schools shut down, are becoming increasingly frustrated in, in some uh, areas of public education and, and are looking for opportunities, which is why, you know, if we're going to make a significant investment, we're going to need to also uh, have an opportunity to invest in, in school choice. That way parents have that opportunity to uh, choose what's best for their kids. And, you know, and the other, the one of the other factors that we've got going in here, I mean, we're talking about education, but, um, you know, for the past couple of years, we've been completely, it's not just the budget surplus. We've been flush with cash because of the COVID relief funds. And, you know, looking back to when I started covering politics, you know, well over 15 years ago now, when everybody was, you know, every level of government, you know, 15, 15 years ago was broke. And suddenly everybody's flush with cash. Well, you know, end of this year, you know, at the end of this month, that, that faucet's turned off, you know, supposedly. So what kinds of funding cliffs are, are you anticipating having to uh, address next year? I mean, when you have everybody coming to you uh, with their hands out saying, hey, you need to, you need to backfill this, this lost funding we, we, we're, we're dealing with. Yeah, that's going to be a challenge that, that we're going to have to deal with. It's not just 
um, K-12 education that sees inflationary pressures. It's counties, local governments, even us as state agencies, especially like in areas of corrections where we have a hard time hiring correction officers because it's not a job a lot of people want to do. And we've been, I mean, even pre-pandemic, we were struggling with trying to hire correctional officers at some of our our prisons around the state. Um, so yeah, we're going to have to make some some investments. You referenced the $2.6 billion. Um, if you look at money that's come into Wisconsin just since they started the pandemic, whether it was through enhanced unemployment insurance, uh, direct payments to businesses, direct payments just to individuals, uh, there's been uh, $56 billion that came into the state of Wisconsin since they started the pandemic. To put that into perspective, that's more than one year of a state budget. And so that's, I mean, that's why we're seeing, one of the reasons we're seeing rampant inflation around the state and why everybody's seeing all these um, challenges and keeping staff, maintaining staff, and why we're paying $5 for a dozen eggs and $3, $4 for a gallon of gas. Uh, it's, it's because of the irresponsible federal spending. And, and fortunately, we've been responsible in the state of Wisconsin, so we have a surplus to deal with this. Now, you know, in terms of, you know, an income tax cut, which, you know, you stated is going to be one of the priorities, you know, how, how do you um, – I guess what's the uh, starting position on that? Like, what, what are you guys like planning? Uh, I mean, w- without you know showing your hand. I mean, w- what what are you hoping to uh, to see with that income tax? Are we gonna are we gonna see a flat tax proposal? I uh, you will, you will see a flat tax proposal. Um, I've been uh, somewhat open about my my desire to get a flat tax in Wisconsin, and we we can definitely do it. Um, in the last budget, you know, we sort of hit the second and third tax brackets. Um, we can't just keep ignoring the fourth tax bracket in Wisconsin because if, if we keep just compressing the second and third tax bracket, we'll never get to the fourth tax bracket. So we, uh, we're working on a plan in my office, and, uh, and I'm sure the assembly might be working on their own plan as well. But uh, we think over a two- to three-, maybe four-year ramp down, we can get to a – around a three point to the bottom tax rate 3.54 bring all the other three tax rates down to 3.54 we have the resources to do this <clears throat> and you know if, if we do this in wisconsin it'd just be huge um our neighboring states uh, minnesota and michigan um lost their legisl- republican legislatures um in this last election cycle so they're being controlled by three parties uh well three branches, all Democrat, just like Illinois. So I don't see any major tax relief being introduced in any of our neighboring states outside of Iowa, which already is headed towards a flat tax. So, you know, it'd be great for businesses, for individuals living in Wisconsin to attract people to live here. If you're a talented individual and you can pay three and a half percent on income tax instead of seven and a half percent on income tax, you know, that's, that's, that's a big deal. And, uh, you know, we've been working our way in reducing income taxes, and our revenues continue to go up. So the doomsday fear that also we're going to hit a cliff where revenue is not going to come in, it's going to help by being more and more competitive. It's going to help our state thrive and, and grow. So I got to do a little cross promotion here now that now that you uh, you know after after um, you know now that we're talking about flat tax, uh, first uh, 
uh, McIver's uh, published a plan a couple years ago called a glide path to a 3% flat income tax. So got, got to put in a pitch for that. And also uh, earlier this week, um, and uh, interviewed uh, Grover Norquist from Americans for, for Tax Reform. And he was talking about um, some of the, uh, the great um, advantages to a flat tax and how that really does, it, a flat tax really crosses party lines. There are states out there with a flat tax that you, you'd be surprised to, to, you know, if you don't follow this, you might be surprised to know that Illinois has a flat tax and its income taxes are generally lower than Wisconsin's. Um, right. And all, not only does Illinois have a flat tax, but when they tried to get rid of it a couple years ago, voters in that very blue state who overwhelmingly elected Joe Biden also overwhelmingly voted against getting rid of that flat tax. So a flat tax is something that it's, you know, it might be something that conservatives are really, uh, you know, trying to um, really trying to, you know, cheerlead. But once it's in place, everybody loves it. No, you're you're exactly correct. I mean, and it benefits, you know, small Main Street businesses. The, the person who has five to 10 to 20 employees working for them, they're taking that personal income. That's less income taxes that they're paying that they can invest back into their local community and and hire more employees and invest in their community and it would just make such a huge difference and we you know when retirees um, are getting ready to retire they might spend seven months in wisconsin and five months in florida instead of the the inverse if we get our income taxes low enough so that means more investment here in wisconsin more sales tax revenue it it just helps out all around you know and you know and yeah i mean we've always had that uh, that migration to like florida and arizona uh, but, you know, it's been incredible the number of people I've met over the years, uh, retired people, who live in Illinois. And they tell me that because it's cheaper for them to live in Illinois than Wisconsin as a retired person. I mean, that just that knocks my socks off. Yep. Crazy. So tell me about, um, tell me about your team on joint finance and, uh, how, you know, who, who's, who's on your team and how are we going to get these, these, uh, these uh, goals done, uh, you know, uh, in the next budget? So we have uh, four returning members out of the six. Um, two, two of our members didn't run again, uh, Senator Coinga and Senator Bernier. Uh, so uh, Senator Markline, who did a great job leading through the budget process last time, will co-chair the committee again. And the other three members will stay on there. They're, they're very... Um, they work work their tails off working through a 85 billion dollar budget uh, takes takes a lot of work so Senator Felskowski, Senator Strobel and Senator Balwig uh, are returning um, later on this week I'll I'll appoint my two new members onto the committee but uh, looking forward to you know we've we have a great start to that that committee and uh, a lot of good fiscal conservatives who really understand uh, tax policy and, and a diverse diverse field too. You know, Mary Felskowski, well, Howard Markline, who's a CPA, uh, Senator Strobel, who's um, owns you know a couple small business or business. He's a business owner, understands the business aspect, the you know TIF districts and things like that. Uh, Senator Felskowski, who owns an insurance company, and uh, so understands like the health and insurance areas very well and senator Balwig, whose family owns a, a farm implement 
it's something in your culture. So she, she uh, has expertise in that field. So it's good to have diverse people who all, you know, are involved in currently or in the past in the business world who have real world understanding of what, 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 what choices government makes affects on the real world. No, I, it sounds like it sounds like a great team, um, you know. And obviously, at McIver, we follow the we follow the budget very closely. That's, you know, one of our one of our main missions is to um, uh, follow, analyze, make recommendations, uh, and uh, just really let people know what's going on with uh, the state budget. And um, uh, so you you know that we'll be hanging on every word <laughs> that that they. Uh, that they that they say at those uh, joint committee meetings, and uh, yeah, we're looking forward to uh, we're looking forward to another uh, interesting and productive budget session. Yeah, we have a you know once probably a once in a generation opportunity with a projected six point six billion dollar surplus. You know this is this is only projected uh, at the end of the budget cycle, which is June 30th of next year, and we don't know if the economy might slow down a little bit, what that might do to numbers. But we'll have a better feel in April of next year when the nonpartisan fiscal bureau comes out with their estimates in April, and we'll have another three four months of, of information of tax collections. But rarely, we thought it was good two years ago when we had a three billion dollar additional amount of money going through the process to work with to provide that in tax cuts. Um, we, I mean, the amount of money that we have this year is just incredible. And as, as you guys know at McIver, that if you have a $6.6 billion surplus, that means people are being taxed too much. And the answer isn't spending it all. The answer is giving it back to the people paying the taxes. And that's through permanent tax relief. You know, and that's really where the battle lines are going to be drawn uh are always drawn it's give the money back to the people or spend it on more government so um yeah we're uh we, we can anticipate that fight for uh, the year ahead for sure right well hey senator thank you so much for for joining us today uh really appreciate the uh the insight the preview and uh the, the review of last year so hope you have a, a wonderful holiday season and merry christmas Thank you. Merry Christmas to you and your uh, listeners. Again, that was Senator Devin Lamahue, Senate Majority Leader for the Wisconsin State Senate, talking about uh, this past year and uh, what what he's anticipating in 2023 with our $6.5 billion budget sur- anticipated surplus here in Wisconsin and the state budget's uh, fight ahead. Uh, and I am Bill Smolsky with the McIver Institute. As always, thank you very much for joining us for the McIver Newsmakers Podcast.